A lot of startup is that. It's recognizing a problem, and a lot of people recognize problems. It's getting the glimpse that there might be a new and different way to solve this problem. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today my colleague Luke Butler and I are sitting down with Mark Randolph, co-founder of one of the most popular streaming services in the world, Netflix. Mark established Netflix in the late 90s with his business partner, Reed Hastings. So how did Netflix go from a small startup delivering DVDs to the industry disruptor? From idea generation to team building to knowing when it's time to just walk away. Mark's new book, That Will Never Work, explains it all. It's the ultimate follow your dream story with many lessons for entrepreneurs or virtually anyone looking to set a goal and chase it. You'll hear Mark's thoughts on the dangers of glorifying entrepreneurship, investing in people over products, and much more. Now, live at Lift Labs. We're going to jump right in. Uh, if you could take us back to your early days, sort of your upbringing, and what were some of the earliest jobs that you had where your entrepreneurial spirit really came through? You know, I think like most entrepreneurs, probably my first startup, I was uh, doing candy arbitrage, <laughs> where you kind of realize that, whoa, I could buy the candy bar for 10 cents here and I get a buck for it at school. <laughs> and it's kind of seeing those opportunities. But I did things that a lot of kids back then did. I sold American seeds, where you basically go up and down the, the street pitching to people to buy seeds so you can buy some piece of crap out of a catalog. What did you buy out of the catalog? I Do bought a little stopwatch. Oh. Yeah, there you go, which is a piece of garbage, but it's okay. I mean, semi-exploitive at the time, but it was great because you begin to find that connection between money and effort. But more importantly, you learn salesmanship. I mean, you're going door to door to door to door and you're selling seeds. And so you're trying all kinds of different things and internalizing what works. And do you still use those same skills from your first entrepreneurship experiences in, in every part of your life, right? So would you say that the selling of seeds and your salesmanship, is that, would you say, is your sort of sweet spot as, a, as what you stand for? No, I'd say probably the one about the candy arbitrage is a lot closer to being a model for what came after. Because what that really was was seeing a problem and seeing a solution and all of a sudden a light bulb going off that you could just draw the straight line between the problem and the solution. And a lot of startup is that. It's recognizing a problem and a lot of people recognize problems. It's getting the glimpse that there might be a new and different way to solve this problem. But there's another piece of it which probably ties into the seed one, which is that I grew up in this atmosphere of there was no such thing as no or impossibility. These are just challenges to get around. And so that also, when you combine it with the, uh, the sense of uh, seeing a problem and a solution, I think that ended up being a pretty powerful combination. Did you have a family that was very supportive of all of your amazing things you wanted to try? What were your... Oh, it was a risk-taking family for sure. For example, I would come home and I'd tell my father, hey, I'm going caving. And whereas so many families would go, what are you out of your mind caving? He'd go, oh, that sounds fantastic. 
And almost anything that I came up with these crazy ideas, they'd go, wow, that sounds great. And it kind of convinced me that there was no such thing as a really crazy idea because everything I brought up, no matter how ridiculous, was greeted with, you should try that, rather than with this recitation of all the reasons why that won't ever work. And, you know, overcoming objections is a huge part. And I don't mean objections from people, but I mean objections from the market. Everything seems impossible. You have to believe that you're just not seeing it yet. And the only other follow-up on that one, too, is you had all of these great ideas. Your parents would say, yeah, this is great. But you actually went and tried them, which is the that leap, right? Yeah, so it is. a lot of people dream of these things and they sit on a shelf or say that they want to try something for the first time or want to give it a go. But you actually took that next step and, and tried a lot of things. It's a huge thing and, and didn't give up. A great story, and this is from a little bit older, when I was in college and I was, I think, a, a junior or a senior and about to graduate, and I wanted to be an advertising person. And the only job an undergraduate could get was an account exec. And it was really competitive because it was one of the only jobs a liberal arts person could get. But anyway, they were doing the tour and I interviewed and, and was like one of a thousand people and then made the first cut. And I think there was 150 people who got to come to New York for like a half day of interviews. And then it got narrowed further to like 40 people. And I made the cut again. And then it was down to the last four people. And we spent the whole day at the agency. And I was getting psyched. And I didn't get the job. And slunk back to college and was going, I'm not ready to give up. And I wrote this letter, no email then, but wrote a letter to every single person I'd interviewed, not just that day, but the last time I was there and said, what did I do wrong? What was I missing? What can I do better? Because I'm going to come back and try again. And they called me back and they brought me back and they offered me the job. And it turned out that of those four finalists, they hadn't offered any of us the job. That this was a turning a no into a yes type of job. And they wanted to see who wouldn't take no for an answer. You've just come out with this this great new book, That Will Never Work, which has lessons from a, a lifetime of both building companies, but also mentoring founders and great tips for people that are building companies today. But it's also the story of the beginning of Netflix, which is this this company that we all know and that, that has just transformed media. Take us back to those kind of unrecognizable early days. You, you and, and and your your friend and business partner, Reed Hastings, carpooling on the way to work. You're pitching all of these ideas. And unlike, I imagine, unlike your parents who said yes to everything, you know, you and Reed, Reed wasn't saying yes to everything that, uh, every idea that came up. Talk about kind of how this business that we all know so well came into your mind and, and, and the early days of it. You know, in many ways, that will never work is that untold story of Netflix, because people do think that somehow it sprang into global prominence as a streaming company because of a late fee or something like that. And I really wanted to tell the story that it could have been anything. I mean, at the beginning, we were in an old bank building with these dirty carpets, and we stored our DVDs in the vault, and we had no furniture and had to bring in beach chairs. And one time... My wife came to the office and she was talking to me and she stops and looks and goes, are those our dining room chairs, which I had stolen to be, fill our conference room up. But it's this realization that Netflix was a startup once. And in fact, as you were mentioning, it didn't always involve video, that some of the ideas that I pitched to Reed Hastings in our commute to work 
were crazy ideas, like doing a customized shampoo by mail or dog food that was going to be custom formulated for your pet. And I even did this research into what it would cost to get a computer-controlled milling machine to custom do baseball bats. So we could do it for every size and shape, and you could have Hank Aaron's bat if you wanted. You're very much the startup guy. You, you like the idea, you like getting it going and, and building that initial team. Less interested in kind of scaling or running a big organization. What is unique about you and some of the other founders that are listening to this podcast that they really like that that messy early stage where you've kind of got a blank sheet of paper in front of you? What, what makes you good at that? A short attention span certainly helps. Or more importantly, I actually managed to find a way to make a living, whereas I would have flunked out of any large company in about one week. But I think that there is this certain appeal to the early stage company where everything is broken and you do not need to perfect it. You do not need to make it super efficient. You just need to fix it so that it works so you can move on to the next thing. And more importantly, there's no roadmap as to what you're supposed to do about what you're supposed to fix first. You're constantly figuring it out. It's a puzzle that's no one solved before. And you get to come to work every day with people who are like-minded and sit around this table and solve really interesting problems with really smart people. That is addicting. Whereas the job, now I'll show my ignorance, but to come into a big office and you go, today I need to work on uh, extracting 0.002 points of margin from my supply chain, that would just make my head explode. And I'd be terrible at it. Will you talk about your process in in those meetings? Just out of curiosity, the, uh, you know, when you were talking about at the earliest stage of what you would be, how you would run the company, were you whiteboarding at the time? Were, like, was this all done in your head? Was there someone sitting next to you who helped get this out of your head? Like, what was a little bit of the behind-the-scenes process? I started Netflix when I was 38 years old. Um, and Netflix was my sixth startup. And I had long since figured out what I was bad at. And I am not a great follow-through guy. So I had surrounded myself with people who were follow-through people um, and who loved it. And we had this incredible synergy. And part of the advantage of being a later, an older founder is you had the chance to accumulate people who you know and trust. You know, and one person I brought with me from my previous company, uh, a woman named Christina Kish, who was fundamental in starting this. Another one, T. Smith, came from my job before that. And I knew these people, and they knew me, and we could communicate without talking. So, yes, you definitely need to complement your strengths with people who have different strengths. But I'm not a—I love whiteboards. I mean, I have them in my house. You know, uh, if you take away my whiteboard markers, that becomes strangely non-communicative. Um, Do you have a go-to color? Just out of curiosity, when whiteboarding, I've always—I'm actually really curious about. I'm fond for red. Okay. Red. Yeah, I don't like green. Okay. I don't know why. Yeah. All right. And blue. Don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, but the thing that I'm actually good at is. A lot of times you'll be sitting in a meeting and the discussion is wide ranging. And what I've realized I'm pretty good at is framing the decision, is recognizing, wait, 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 what we're really saying is, is it this versus this? It's being able to take a multivariate problem with many, many angles and move it onto a, a simpler 
axes, which allows people to then begin focusing in on what are the, what are the, what's the data or what are the assumptions we need to be in agreement on to understand where to go with this. Otherwise, you end up all over the place for hours, and this focuses people. There's no certainty, but it focuses you on recognizing we don't, aren't going to know everything, but we at least know what the problem is we're trying to solve, and we know what the factors are that we should wait in making this decision. That kind of connects to culture overall in building a, what I would say an inclusive culture where you're hearing opinions and getting to a place of some kind of agreement around what is it that we're we're moving forward with, and then you're deciding, here's what we're moving forward with, and everyone's kind of on board with you, right? Um, from a culture perspective, can you talk about the early days of Netflix and was an open and what I would say a, a very thoughtful culture, was it written down in what you wanted the culture of Netflix to be, or were these unsaid terms that you and Reed had in your mind that you just wanted to to become true because the people would would feel it that way was it was it I'm something you're really thoughtful ne- about neither of those actually in fact i think aspirational cultures are the worst we're a new building we're going to carve in the cornerstone and you hope that that's going to become true because you've said it um, and even the companies which do culture decks, and I'd put certainly you know Netflix in that thing, the culture deck doesn't establish the culture. It writes down and articulates what the real culture truly is. But fundamentally, and it's not even Reed and I saying, what should we do? Culture comes from how the founders treat each other. It comes from how you act. There is not time to think, we want this, uh, you just do. If you have a certain way of acting, that becomes the culture. Culture is not what you write down or say. It's who you hire. It's who you fire. It's who you reward. That, as anyone who has kids knows, they pay way more attention to what the parent does than to what the parent says. And culture is the same thing. In a startup where there is no time for people to be given specific direction. And every startup's like this. You have a million things to do and only 10 people to do it with. So you tell people, just meet me over there. And everyone does what needs to get done. What happens is companies lose that culture. As they get larger, they feel they need to have layers and management and they need to have rules and procedures. And decks. And and decks. And process. And that's what ruins it. What Reed and I decided early on is not here's how we want to act, but we want to preserve this way we're acting organically as long as we possibly can. The book and the story, and the, it's a very human book. It's a very human story. You, you're very open and honest with some of the challenges that you faced as a company, but also some of the challenges that, that you faced in recognizing where you are strong and, and where you are less strong. As you mentor founders today, talk about how you talk to them about being a human being while running the company, like the, dealing with the stress, the mental challenges that come with just being the, the decision maker, the person at the top that everyone's looking to. How do you advise founders based on your own experience? And, and what were some of the challenges that you had as a person when you were building this company and, and getting it off the ground? So I'll come at it from a slightly different direction as I often want to do. We all have to be careful, and I'm going to put you two on notice here. We can't glorify entrepreneurship. 
that is the worst thing that's ever happened to entrepreneurship is creating this culture, this myth of this founder. And then people go, I want to be an entrepreneur and because they want to be rich or they want to be famous or something. And that just gets us into so much trouble. And what I was really trying to do in the book is show that it's not, it's not about that. It's about being human and you have to have the right goals. The goal was I wanted to have a job that I love. I want to work with people that I respect and I can laugh a lot with. I want to want to go to work every day and I want balance in my life. I want to, you know, I don't want to be someone on my sixth startup and my sixth wife. Um, I want my kids to know me. And Do you still have uh, Tuesday night date night with your wife? Is that still secret? Well, I guess today's Tuesday, so you're not gonna you're no. gonna skip it to, skip it this week. The funny thing is, right after uh, after I left Netflix and I was taking about a year to kind of figure out where I wanted to go next, we'd wake up and be Tuesday morning, and we go, "What day is it? It's Saturday!" <laughs> and then Wednesday would wake up, "What day is it? It's Saturday!" So in other words, I got after I got out of Netflix, I had a lot of uh, a, lot of a lot of Tuesdays. But of course, you're alluding to the fact that early on. Even before Netflix, I established this principle that I did not want to be consumed, and I wanted to make sure that I was still best friends with my best friend. And we had this rule, my wife and I, that every Tuesday, 5 o'clock sharp, I'd leave the office and we'd have date night. And if there's a crisis, well, it better be resolved by 5. If there was an emergency meeting, it takes place on the way to my car. The amazing thing is that after about a month and a half or two months of enforcing that discipline, people stop asking because they know you're serious. And then the even better thing happens is everyone else, again, culture springs from what you do, not what you say. Everyone else begins taking date nights. And rather than saying we're all about life balance, if the founders aren't modeling it, what's the point of saying it? What did you do on your date nights? Certainly at Netflix, we had a little kid. I mean, I think Hunter was probably six months old. And we would bring him down to this little restaurant that we knew, uh, which would tolerate us having the little baby there. And we would have dinner. If the, we could have leave the kids the sitter, we'd go for... We, I live on the, on the beach, go for a walk. I mean, all these things that sound like they're out of uh, Harry Met Sally or something like that. But it's... <laughs> we just, just be with each other and not be in the office. What you say about kind of not not glorifying founders and entrepreneurship is, is really important. And we, I mean, we're going to give this book to, to every founder that we work with. We just wrapped up an accelerator that we run in partnership where we had 11 companies living with us for the last three months. And our whole team was here with them 14, 15 hours a day, just really helping them think through and struggle. There was very little glamour and glory in that, but they, they're convinced that they're solving an important problem. As you now get inundated, I imagine, by, by, fa- by founders that want to learn from you and work with you. What's the kind of the quality that you look for? The, the, they've got to be kind of going after something that they care about. What's the, the kind of the human quality that you look for in, in somebody that you want to work with and somebody that you want to advise? Oh, you took that into a, you twisted it at the end to a much better answer, which is the who do I want to work with, as opposed to who do I think is going to be the most successful? Because Sometimes they're the same, but more the exception than the rule. Mentoring someone is intensive. I don't do advising, uh, which is superficial pattern recognition stuff. I need to understand someone's business well enough that I know their co-founders well. I know their employees well. I know their market, their board, their product, their competitors. 
because what I'm after selfishly is reliving that sit around the table, solving hard problems with interesting people. And if I can't genuinely understand the question and I can't give meaningful advice. Um, and it turns out, and all founders who are listening know this, is that it's really lonely. You can't be fully forthcoming with your board. You can't be fully forthcoming with your employees. You can go to your peers, but they don't really understand the problem. And I realized that there is this role out there for someone who can play that, who can know the problem well enough to give really good advice and not have an ax to grind. For, I don't serve on the boards of the companies I mentor because I don't want to be this person's boss. I don't take preferred stock. I don't invest in the company because I don't want to have a different class of stock than the founder. So when they come to me and goes, I'm trying to figure out whether to do the debt or equity in this one or this person wants this liquidation. I don't want to be conflicted in my advice. So what I look for it's so intense sometimes, and you spend so much time sometimes, I got to like the person. So that's the one way to answer that question. If I can't, if the phone rings at one o'clock in the morning and I look down and see who it is and wince, I made a big mistake. So you and, and Reed decided to part ways while well, you left Netflix, I guess, a few years into the company. How many years was it? Uh, six. Six years into the company. What was the turning point for you that made you say, I have done as much as I can here. It's in great hands and I'm going to try something next. Well, there was something that was brewing for a long time, which is, as you probably picked up, I'm a early stage guy. The earlier, the better. I just love that freewheeling aspect of it. As Netflix got bigger, and particularly when it did its IPO, it wasn't a startup anymore. I mean, we had pretty big volumes and huge numbers of customers, and more importantly, had recruited people who were unbelievably good at their jobs. And I realized that I still loved the company like I always did, but I didn't love the things I was doing every day. And then the other thing is that back then, it was almost impossible for an insider to sell stock after an IPO. Insider meaning executive officer of the company because it got reported out. And if it showed that a founder was selling stock, it just looked bad. Now they have plans. I forgot what they're called. But there's a plan that people use to sell sequentially to get a past um, liquidity for founders. Back then, no. And this was going to be an order of magnitude different success than I'd had before. And I decided that I owed it to my family to be able to sell stock combined with the sense that my role wasn't valuable here anymore, I decided this is a perfect opportunity to get out after the IPO. And do you feel like when you went to what was next, was it about feeling finished in what you had contributed to Netflix or was it also looking at maybe what you would do next oh, that excited absolutely you? what I would do, do next. Yes. I mean, you know, people, once Netflix starts becoming recognized, then people are out of the woodwork asking for advice. And I screwed it up. I mean, at the beginning, I was an advisor or I served on the, well, I'll get myself in trouble here, on the worst invention um, in the world, which is the advisory board. And it took a while to realize that I, that was not for me at all. So I had about a year, a year and a half in the wilderness and I solved it by doing what I always do is I plan. I go, what do I want to accomplish out of this next phase of my life? How am I going to make that work? And that's what led to the, this combination of mentoring, 
a little bit of investing, but largely to give people the same opportunity I had, not necessarily to make money at it. And then ultimately, the reason I wrote the book was because I think that the lessons I've learned over 40 years as an entrepreneur are applicable to anybody who has an idea. Whether it's a business or not, everyone has these dreams. We all get told at our college graduation, follow your dreams, but they neglected to give us follow your dreams 101 as part of the curriculum. And I realized the same things that go into starting and building a company are the exact same things you can use to take any idea you have and make real. And so I'd say I spend most of my time now not just beating that drum, but literally trying to help unlock people to recognize that you can do this. You just need to get rid of those reasons you say you can't and start. And it doesn't mean that you have to be an entrepreneur. You could be an entrepreneur in your larger company. You could be using these uh, tips and tricks at home. They're so applicable in, in so many different ways. I mean, there's lessons here if, if you're building a business, but I think that the lessons here are broader than that. I think it is. If you say, gosh, I wish I could figure out a way to afford an apartment downtown, there's a way to approach that problem. That's the exact same one you'd use if you were an entrepreneur. Like you said, if you are in a big company and you're running a department or even an employee in the department, there's things you see every day where you go, there's got to be a better way to do this. But how do you then move from that to actually being the person who does it? And those steps are, have been well-established. And what I really tried to do is by all the thinking, all the, I've done it long enough, I think I figured out that it's not as hard as people make it out to be. Great. So we're going to wrap it up. Mark Randolph, co-founder and the first CEO of Netflix, author of That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for being here at Left Labs with Luke and me. Oh, thanks so much as well for having me. Really fun. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more info and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Shemidlin with associate production by Angela Gervasi, editing by Max Graham, audio by Isa Azwata, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Left Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time. <laughs>